Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians 3, 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see all of you this morning. Uh, My name is Branch. If you don't know me, I'm part of the team here at Christ City Church. And uh, I'm just delighted to be here this morning. This is an awesome text we get to walk through that Andrew just read. And uh, before we get going, we should actually ask God's help. We should ask him to to bless this time and to, to help us to understand it and to learn from it. So if you'd pray with me, that'd be great. Father, we do. We come before you uh, as needy people. Lord, as sinners who have been saved by your grace, or those of us that know Jesus. Lord, we, we look up to you and we just ask you now to do something that, that we cannot do. To cause Jesus Christ to be glorious and beautiful. To shine in all his splendor and in his love in our hearts and our minds that we would know the depths of your love for us in a greater way as we do a bit of a deep dive here in in looking at at the curse, Father. Help us now uh, in his name and by your power, by your spirit. Amen. So I had a question as we began that came to mind, and I thought I'd ask this. Have you ever managed to get yourself into a situation in life that you weren't able to, to get yourself out of. You couldn't bear the cost of what it would take to to free you from the situation that you were in. I think life's actually full of situations like that. There's lots of them. Uh, One of them, for an example, if if you followed the the harrowing story of the 12 Thai boys, a soccer team, uh, over the summer and their coach, right? And, And they're four kilometers deep in a cave, chased there by the rising water levels. It's cold. It's so dark. I mean, you couldn't see your hand if it was touching your nose in front of your face. Uh, No food. No hope of rescue. No word from the outside. Impossible to communicate with anybody. And they were there for, for nine days before the first diver broke the water and shone the flashlight on those boys saying, hey, help's on the way. And after 17 days and many miracles, the boys were all safe and recovering. But as is always the case, their rescue wasn't without sacrifice. There's a a significant cost to this rescue. One of the divers, one of the, the Thai seal divers, he actually died. Preparing the way for these boys to come out of the cave, he passed away. Other divers were treated for hypothermia. And of course, there were the the farmers that lived in the fields below uh, the cave that had 128 million liters of water washing over their crops. And they said, you know what? It's worth it. Let those industrial pumps run. We're going to save these boys. It's 50 Olympic-sized swimming pools of water washing over and flooding their crops. And what strikes me about this story, maybe it strikes you too, is the willingness of the sacrifice. 
If it weren't for the love and the compassion of those who were willing to sacrifice to save them, all 12 boys and their coach would have died. So why do I share this? Well, I think in many ways that the experience of the boys in that cave isn't that different from our own experience. In this life, maybe you face some suffering like those boys did in that cave. In this life, we have all kinds of awful things that happen. We have death and disease. Maybe there's a diagnosis that you're thinking about for you or for a loved one. Maybe it's a personal demon that you're aware of, something that you just can't get over, you can't seem to beat in your life that, that pulls you down. Maybe it's your relationships that are falling apart around you. There's this suffering that seems to be difficult to avoid in any way, no matter how hard we try. We've got hatred, we've got violence, we've got famine, we've got environmental problems. We're deep in the cave. We're deep in the cave. And like the boys in the dark, I think, waiting those nine days before they heard any word of rescue, we wonder, who will save us from this? Who has the ability to do what we cannot do? Who has the means, who is willing and able to take the cost and the expense of our rescue upon their shoulders to save us, to do, the, to do what we cannot do? Well, there's good news for us this morning, isn't there, in our text? Paul answers that question in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. And I do realize that we haven't been in Galatians for a little while now. So I, I know that Sunday's back into the, the series do feel a little bit jarring after coming off of Advent. So I wanted to say a quick word of context and get into, uh, remind us what's going on in the book of Galatians as we get oriented once again to Galatians. I think it's been six weeks. It's been a little while now. So let's do that and take a look at the context and remind ourselves of what's going on. Well, the book of Galatians was written by a man named Paul. Okay, check as a letter to a group of churches that he'd planted and was deeply concerned about. And he was concerned because after he had planted these churches and he'd gone on and was uh, planting other churches, doing other missionary work, he had heard a disturbing report. And his disturbing report that he had heard was that there were these Jewish false teachers who had come into the Galatian churches and were preaching a false gospel, preaching a false way of salvation. They're saying, if you really want to please God... I mean, yeah, 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 what Paul says is fine. That's good. Jesus is a great guy. Good stuff. We believe that. But if you really want to please God, you should start following those 613 laws in the Old Testament. Maybe you should march down to the local synagogue and get circumcised. That'd be a good place to start. And then you'll truly live into the blessing that God has for you. You'll truly be saved that way. Or to turn to this cave illustration, it's as if the Galatians were those boys at the end of the tunnel, and somehow... These outsiders were communicating with him and saying, hey, look, that diver, yeah, he's, he's great. He's got a flashlight. That's cool. But if you want to be saved, you've got to jump into the water. You've got to swim that four kilometers by yourself. That's how you'll really get there. Don't trust them. You, you know, you've got you to dive and you've got to swim. You've got to swim. And in the face of this situation, Paul had one message. He says, Jesus alone can save you. You've got to trust him. You have to have faith in him. You will be made right in God's eyes and forgiven of your sin and given blessing upon blessing only by trusting in Jesus to do what Jesus alone can do. That's the context. It's the context of this book. And then we get to our passage. 
And if you imagine the gospel maybe as uh, a mechanic shop and there's this, maybe there's a, a car there in front of the shop and you're like, oh, that's a pretty cool car. And the mechanic then would say, yeah, yeah, but let's open it up. Let's take a look at how it works. Today's kind of like that. Today, this passage is kind of like opening up the hood on the gospel. Taking a little bit of a deeper dive to look at what exactly was the expense of the gospel. What was the cost? What was the price of the rescue? So, we're going to look at that this morning. Three points, and that's it. We'll look at the problem facing us in the Galatians. We'll look at the price of the rescue. And then we'll look at the, the payment that was made. So the problem, the price, and the payment. And these are going to be, just as a word of warning, pretty heavily unequal points. So we'll have a fast point, a long point, and then a fast point again. So look with me at verse 10. And our first point, the problem. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The problem is that relying on our own effort to save ourselves won't get us there. It's not going to work. So that's why Paul said this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Paul's saying if you take the burden of your own salvation on your shoulders by trying to be a good person. Do we hear that a lot today? Don't we hear that? Isn't that just super common? I'm a good person. I can do it myself. I can, I can somehow be good enough on my own. If you try to do that by following works of the law or trying to earn somehow some goodness by yourself, you'll swim a hundred feet out into the tunnel and you'll drown. It's going to be over. Paul says everyone who relies or who trusts the works of the law their own ability. He says those people will actually be not good in God's eyes, but under a curse. But why won't our attempts work? Why is that? Why, why can't we do this? Well, Paul says in verse 10, because cursed is everyone who does not abide by, this is so key, all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's saying the only percentage that's good enough to pass your works of the law exam is 100%. You don't get saved by swimming 50% of the way out of the tunnel. That's not good enough. 60% isn't good enough. You've got to get all the way out. Close only counts, as they say, in horseshoes and hand grenades. It does not count in trying to attain the righteousness of God. It's not going to work that way. This is why Paul can say with such confidence in verses 11 through 12. He says this. Now it is evident. It's clear. It's plain as day that no one is justified. He's just saying no one's saved or no one's made right. No one's a good person before God by the law. For the righteous shall live. Notice this. Not by works. Not by their effort. But by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them is going to have to live by them. He's going to have to live by the perfect requirement of obedience under the law. So if I want to try to be justified by the law, if I want to truly be a good person, I got to obey all of it. 
to find life, I've got to swim to the end of that four kilometers. I can't hold my breath that long. I feel pretty cool sometimes about swimming all the way under the water of a pool, you know, like maybe from side to side, but not four kilometers through a tunnel. That's too much. I can't do that. You can't do that. And as a result, we're not blessed by God. We face disaster. This text says we are under a curse. We're cursed by him. But let's look at this a bit more closely. This is where the Thai soccer team and the cave analogy breaks down for us. Because where they certainly weren't morally culpable for the situation that they were in, we are morally culpable for the situation that we are in. The darkness that we face, the suffering in our lives, this broken world, our own broken sinful hearts, the Bible puts that responsibility fairly and squarely on our shoulders. We're there because of our sin. And there is a very high price to pay because of it. God's curse. And this leads to our second point, the price. And look, I get it. You probably weren't waking up this morning thinking about the curse, right? Unless you watched Bewitched last night or something, you know, you binge watched uh, several old episodes. You don't have the curse on your mind probably coming into church today. I don't think that's the case. And probably most of your conceptions of a curse are also not really even what we're talking about in this text. There's some kind of cultural thing. Cultural things, cultural curses, cultural ideas of cursing are prevalent today. Maybe you've seen one of them. Maybe you saw the the recent cultural thing that was happening right now where there's a group of witches that are every month getting together to curse Donald Trump. I don't know if you know this. They are trying to put a binding curse on him that will limit his power. So Tara Burton reports in, uh, in Vox magazine, she says, the resistance witches and at least 13,000 strong umbrella group of internet neo-pagan Wiccans. That's a mouthful. And, and there's a dot, you know, I put an ellipses there. There's more to that. I, I made it shorter. Uh, they've come together each month since Trump's inauguration with one goal, to perform a spell, equal parts quasi-religious ritual and activist performance, to bind the president this is my favorite has- hashtag, forming a collective known as the hashtag magic resistance. <clears throat> it's pretty great. To be clear, this is not what we're talking about, right? It hardly needs to be said. This is not the kind of curse that we're talking about. We're not talking about magic or incantations or gathering under a full moon to have some kind of universe uh, alignment with certain energies to manipulate them to our purposes. That's not what we're talking about here. The word curse is a reference, hear this, to the justice and judgment of God against us because of our sin. It's a reference to the justice and the judgment of God against us because of our sin. So let's unpack this carefully. This judgment of God or this curse because of our sin is something the Bible talks about from its very first chapters. You could open up Genesis chapter 3. Famous passage we see for the first time that because of our rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, there is a consequence. There is a curse. Things are not as they should be. And we can trace everything that's wrong in this world back to that day. Back to the beginning of that curse of God's judgment against us because of our sin. And then throughout the Bible from that point, there's this binary distinction between cursing on the one hand and blessing on the other and blessings we find out as god works with his people working out a plan of salvation they come from living in faith 
living in trust towards God, loving him and serving him as we were created to do. But on the other side, curses come for rejecting him, for rejecting his good purposes, for saying, you know what, God, thank you so much for making me and giving this world to live in. I want nothing to do with you and living in opposition to him and his commands. And this concept of blessing and cursing is so important that when the people of Israel, so these ancient people that are spoken of a lot in the Bible, when they were about to enter into the land that God had promised them, their leader, Moses, he led them in a blessing and a cursing ceremony before they entered the land. And it was pretty cool, interesting. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there, but they stood on two mountaintops. And on Mount, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they shouted out the blessings from one mountain and the curses from the other mountain. The blessings for loving God that would happen if they loved him with all of their heart. If they served him with gladness as he had graciously loved them. And then the punishment or the curse that they would receive if they turned their backs on his love and said, you know what, God, thank you very much. We'll do this by ourselves. We want nothing to do with you. So when verse 12 says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. There are actual specific texts in the Bible that we could look at to see just how severe this judgment was. We're going to look at these texts right now. We're going to look at a bunch of them. But as we do, I really want to warn you. Look, this morning is not going to be a morning, at least in this part, where we're going to have a whole bunch of verses we're going to take home and put on top of our mugs and, and do like needlework stitch patterns on the wall. These are not lullaby passages that we will be reading. They're difficult, heavy, hard-hitting, make-me-really-uncomfortable-in-my-seat texts. You might even wonder why we're reading them together. So I'm going to head you off. We're reading them for this reason. We worship the God of the Bible who is perfect and who is holy, who is good, who is the only uncreated one, who is the love and who is just to punish all who rebel against him. And we here at Christ City Church, we don't ever want to be guilty of preaching a God to you who doesn't line up with the God of the Bible. We don't want to preach to you a God who is only 50% of what the Bible says he is. We want to preach the whole of who God is and how he's revealed himself in his word. Even if it makes us tremble, even if it makes us fear. Disobedience against him is not a small thing. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's good for us to know that, to know that that's true. Because as we know that that's true, as we feel that, we'll be prepared to respond appropriately to him and his love and his grace towards us in Jesus. We'll run to him to receive it and to thank him for it. So let's look at these passages. Buckle up. Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 62. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting. And sicknesses, grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid. And they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in this book of the law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. 
As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. That's hard. Let's look again at another passage, Leviticus 26, 27 to 33. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. These are tough passages. These are brutal passages in the Old Testament. But we might ask ourselves, okay, the variant, that's fine, that's the Old Testament, but doesn't, doesn't the New Testament turn a corner? Doesn't it cheer things up a little bit? Isn't God's status towards us a bit more mild and compassionate in the New Testament? Shouldn't we go there to, to see a different kind of God? You know, if you're looking to take refuge in the New Testament to get away from God's judgment, I'm pretty confident you haven't read the New Testament. I know you're uncomfortable right now. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, uh, that exit sign is not too far away. You know, I know that the, the back aisles, you know, take off and, and maybe I can sneak out of here. It's tough. It's tough. But if we're going to do justice to what the Bible says about the curse, we need to hang on just a little longer. So hang in there with me. We're going to turn the corner. We'll get to God's grace. We've got to look at his judgment first. In the New Testament, Jesus talks more about the curse, about God's judgment against us because of our sin than anyone else. And Jesus' word for that ultimate judgment that he uses is hell. He doesn't only reference hell. Look at what Leslie Schmucker says. She says, Jesus doesn't only reference hell. He describes it in great detail. He says that it is a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire. Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. You know, if Jesus talked about it so much, maybe we should listen. Maybe we should listen. We should look at these texts. And then after Jesus, the rest of the New Testament, they'll clear about the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. It is clear about those things. It doesn't let its foot off the pedal of God's justice either. One of the most terrifying and troubling texts in all of the Bible, I think, is Revelation chapter 14. And this is a text where Jesus where Jesus is executing judgment against people like you and I because of our sin. It's a text about the curse of God, the justice of God being poured out on those who have rebelled against God. So look at the imagery of God's judgment there. Look at it in Revelation 14, 14 to 15, and also 19 to 20. The word of God says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the, one, on the cloud, one like a son of man. That's Jesus with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, 
and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's 300 kilometers. That's imagery, but it's communicating something true about God's judgment. I mean, these passages are intense. Are they intense? Is it just me? They're intense. What's the deal with God anyway? Maybe you've wondered, is God some kind of crazy 10-year-old with a magnifying glass just torturing his ant farm? Have you thought that before? Has it crossed your mind? Have you thought, is God in his wrath and his anger out there having a temper tantrum in heaven, throwing things around, putting holes in the wall with his fist? No. No. Unquestionably, no. That's not the reason that God is just and punishes like this. His justice comes from the fact that the Bible says that he is perfect. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He's perfect in every way. And there's good news and bad news because of that. The good news is that he's, he's perfect in his goodness. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his compassion. That's awesome. But there's bad news because if he's perfect, he's perfect in his justice too. And for those of us, all of us, who have not lived before him as we ought to live, who, has not, who have not loved him as we ought to love him, that is bad news for us. That's bad news for us this morning. He's going to perfectly judge us and perfectly punish our sins against him. And as terrifying as that might be, think for a moment, we actually need a God who is perfect in justice. And you actually want a God who is perfect in justice. In the same way that, say, imagine for a moment that you had a family member who, a family member who was murdered. Would you want to bring your family to the court before a wicked and unjust judge on the day that the murderer of your brother or sister or child was being tried? Would you want the judge to walk up that day to the bar and say, you know what, I had a great breakfast. I went on a little walk this morning, the sun was shining, and I'm in a good mood. You know what, man, you can go. You're, you're good. You're fine. Next. Like, do you, want, do you want a judge like that? You don't want a judge like that. Nobody wants a judge who is unpredictable and fickle. We don't want a God who lets murderers off because he's feeling like it. And then other days, maybe he's not feeling like it. We need a God who is just in every circumstance, who is rock solid in all of his judgments, whose every way is just and righteous. But we could still ask, okay, maybe that's true. But then, Brent, why are his judgments so severe? You ever felt that? Why, why are such judgments of massive proportions against little old me? I mean, I'm no Hitler. I'm not Hitler. I've broken some commands. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even really into following God, but do I need a judgment like that? Can I get a little one? Our problem is that we tend to measure our sin, I think, by comparing what we've done to the person who's sitting next to us. Right? You're on the bus. You're out at McDonald's. You're walking on the street, and you find some, you find some sinner who you feel pretty good standing next to. And you're like, look, compared to this guy, I'm, I'm fine. I haven't done what they've done. But here's what we've missed. 
I think we missed two things. We've used the wrong standard. We need to measure ourselves by the righteous requirements of God, by his law, by his perfect righteousness communicated to us in Scripture, and not by the person sitting next to us. But there's another problem. The reality is that our sin isn't measured merely by what we've done. I don't know if you know that. It's not just a matter of what you've done. It's also a matter of who you have done what you have done to. Whom have you sinned against? That is an important question. That's an important part of this puzzle. And I think we, I think we actually, as a creature created in, in the image of God, we know this intuitively. So, so listen to this illustration and see if we can work this out. Consider this. If I were to invite you over for a cup of coffee, right? You came to my house, and there's a fly crawling across the coffee table, and I reach over and squash it. You know, squish it under my hand. You might think, you might think that's pretty gross, Brent. You might not say it. Maybe you'd say, it, I don't know. You know, and you think, I, I sure hope he washes his hands, right? But you, you might not judge me morally. Some of you might, but I think most of you would think you know, that's not really a morally problematic thing to do. But what if I say, hey, let's go for a walk. And we go out for a walk, wandering around. And in the course of our walk, I'm like, oh, a tree frog. That's interesting. And do what my sister did to my tree frog when I was 10. I still hold it against her. You might start thinking back to your intro to psychology classes. And you're like, I'm pretty sure he's killing animals. Uh, sociopath. And you're getting a little bit nervous. Right? That might be the case. But what if I, in the course of our stroll, then I, I saw a puppy. I'm like, oh, it's a cute dog. And I broke its neck. And then what if, as we moved a little longer, I'm like, there's a stroller. There's a baby. I'm going to do the same. You'd run away in terror. You'd be horrified. But here's the question. Why the different reactions? Why one reaction for a fly and another for a child? It's because we know intuitively as creatures that are made in the image of God that actions aren't just measured by, what they've, by what's done. They're measured by who they're done to. And the distance and value and worth between a fly on the one hand and a child, that's a great distance. But that distance pales in comparison between you sinning against a fellow human being and sinning against the God of the universe. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He's perfect. He is just. He is always good. He is faithful. He is love. There is no one like him. God in all his perfections and goodness will be worshipped for all of eternity. And you, a mere created creature, have rebelled and sinned against him. And the perfect judge is going to judge you perfectly. Let's lead us back to our text, Galatians 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Obedience to the law, hear this, Christ City kids, it's not going to save you. Trying to be a good person is not going to save you. It won't be good enough. Nothing that you can do by your own strength and ability, will save you. The price of the rescue is incomprehensibly great. It's the weight of that judgment and that curse. And this points us to an important question. It's like, it's the question that's yelling and screaming at us. The question is, who then is going to save us? 
right? What are we going to do about this? Well, look at our third point, the payment in verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is the good news of the gospel. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. On our own, make no mistake, we are under the curse. We are under God's judgment. The guillotine is raised. Our heads are on the block. And it's just a matter of time before the just judge gives the word and the knife falls. But here's what God's done. He became human so he could put his own head on the block for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The second person of the Trinitarian God of the universe came down to earth and took on human flesh and suffered and died. He attained the blessing you don't deserve and he was cursed for you so that you could receive forgiveness and acceptance Bold confidence to enter into the very presence of God, covered by the blood of Jesus, washed clean, forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says it this way. For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just think about the payment for a second. Think about Think about what Jesus did to save us. Can you imagine that penalty? What was on his shoulders? The thing is, Jesus took not just my place, right? That would be significant enough if Jesus took my place and bore the curse that I deserve, the judgment of God against my own sin. But he didn't just bear the judgment of my own sin. He bore the judgment and the curse that was on Fred's shoulders, that was on Sarah Lynn's shoulders, it was on Maddie's shoulders, and Daniel's shoulders, all of it on the shoulders of Jesus. Of everyone who would believe one day in him and receive his grace and his goodness, the weight of that sin in full is on Jesus' shoulders. He bore the weight of that curse. It's incomprehensible. So when we trust in Jesus... The curse is taken away because it's been dealt with. Because he's completely dealt with it. He became cursed for us. This is why when he's up there on the cross, his final words are, it is finished. It's done. I'm guessing there are some of you right now in this room who need to hear that who need to remember that, that your sin is, done, is dealt with. It's not unusual for Christians who believe the gospel to feel burdened by the weight of their sins. It is finished. Jesus has borne the weight of the curse for you if you're trusting and believing in him by faith. Be free. Rejoice in him. Worship the God who came, who bled, who bore, his, who bore your sin upon his head.
worship him. The cross is so important because it's only at the cross where mercy and where judgment meet. Where God demonstrates that he is a God who is just and who judges sin. But who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. But it's also where he shows us that he is willing out of his love for us to take the sacrifice and the burden of our salvation on his own shoulders. The cross is about love. It's about love. Look at Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But this is so important. Listen to the words of John Stott and don't let this escape you. The cross can be seen as proof of God's love only, only when it is at the same time seen as a proof of his justice. We have to contend with the curse with the the judgment, with the sacrifice to understand the depth of God's love and his mercy towards us through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. So as we close this morning, I want to wrap up and I want to focus a little bit on the blessing as we end. The only way for us to receive God's blessing and his love is if God first deals with our curse. That has to happen first. But when that happens, everything changes. Look at the words of Richard Hayes. He said this. He said, Jesus' death on a cross transforms everything. And it does. Ending the old world under the law and opening up a new world of grace. Hear that. It's the world that's open for us of grace and of freedom and of blessing. In the last verse of our passage, it says it this way. It says that Jesus bore our curse in Galatians 3, verse 14, for this reason, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, let's just pause there for a second, the blessing of Abraham, the promise to recreate this world in goodness, the problem so that the curse would be undone, the curse of Genesis 3 would be ended, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, the promise that we would have hearts that are changed filled with the Spirit of God, given to love God. All that happens. That's the blessing promised through Jesus. Through Jesus. So that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We talked about that last week. The Spirit of God filling up all things. Working His salvation. It's only after, I think, that we've experienced the darkness ourselves. It's only after we spent those nine days in the dark, in the cave, feeling the weight of our burden, that we start to appreciate the blessing that Jesus brings. As he comes to us, you're in the cave right now, imagine this, Jesus comes, he breaks through the water, you see the glimmer of light, and it shines on you. And what does he do for you? He says, come, climb up into my arms and let me carry you through this tunnel. Let me die so that you can be saved. Let me give my life so that you can come to the other side and have the blessing of life that is only found through me. So where are you at this morning? 
Maybe you're here this morning and you just feel crushed under the burden and the weight of your sin. Maybe you've come this morning and you, you know that you've done wrong. And maybe for the first time you're starting to realize and contend with how that burden uh, relates to you in relationship with God. And it's scary. You're feeling the weight of it. Maybe you just feel ashamed. Ashamed of the burden of your sin. You need to look at the words of Galatians 3.11. The righteous shall live by faith. Trust in Jesus to do what you cannot do. Trust in him to carry you that four kilometers out of the tunnel. And can I just say this, Kitsilano? You're not going to save yourself from sin and God's just punishment against it by eating healthier. You're not going to save yourself and do what's necessary to get yourself out of that cave by living a little healthier, by working a little harder, or by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, or by taking refuge in recreation. And you're not going to get there by having an excellent retirement plan. You're not going to accomplish it by having the perfect environmental rescue plan. You're not going to get you yourself out of that. Everything that you can attempt won't work. You will die. And after that, you will face God's judgment. So what do you need to do? You need to trust God who saves sinners. You need to trust God who through Jesus willingly shoulders the unbearable burden of the curse for you. You need to trust God who does the impossible to be saved by him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do, we tremble. We tremble. You are a God who is holy and who is just. Lord, we confess to you that your judgment against us is right. And Lord, we, we come to you in faith, trusting in Jesus to receive your love and your blessing through him. Help us now to cling to him in faith, to hold fast to him because he has done what we could never do. And he has saved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.